it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. You are listening to The Evening Glass on the One Sensational Shot Network. My name is Luke Littleboy and I am joined with Fletcher Bolton. And we're going to be talking about some of the films we've been watching most recently, whether in the cinema or on our telly boxes sat at home. Uh, I'm certainly of the latter variety. And I've been going through my DVD A to Z, something, an ongoing project here at One Sensational Shot Towers, which we started when we, when we started out with the podcast a few years back. And we're still in B because it's whenever there's a slow news week or, or, or n- normally we like to do a thematically led podcast um, but sometimes if there's, a, as if there's a week where we don't know what to do that's when I venture back to that DVD shelf so we're in B this week, it's Barbarella and I look forward to talking to you about it Fletch, what were you going to be chatting about today? Mine's a B as well, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy I took in a double bill, we'll get back to it a little later on I don't want to say too much just at this point I'm also keen to hear from you about Barbarella it's a film I've seen bits of once it's evaded me all this time and that's a mad thing to have been a teenage boy for seven or eight years and have never seen Jane Fonda's Barbarella by Roger Vadim. I'm pleased you mentioned that feeling of being a teenage boy because uh cast your minds back listeners uh some of you may have been there 1968 and we're going to be talking about Barbarella which uh, which is in my opinion a psychedelic very sensual post sexual awakening of the western world sci-fi film and uh and like you said fletch it was something of an awakening for me as a teenage boy um the first interaction i actually had with it was before i'd seen the film do you remember alicia's attic single called barbarella fletch i remember that were they well not really a band it was two ladies singing wasn't two, it yeah two ladies singing yeah I that don't was remember it. And that they had a single. song called all oh, right that, yeah, that it when it's not like Barbarella, Barbarella. It's not like the old fifties glamour. Yeah, that that was my first interaction with the film, and then something clicked into place when a few years later, as a teenager, I then saw it. And yeah, it was an awakening. It did start um, uh, a, a crush, a boyhood crush on Jane Fonda, and um, I think by today's standards, by by modern standards, I know it's a glib point to make. But most kids these days, of course, have uh, more access to more hardcore porn on their smartphone that would make this film completely blush uh, or maybe spontaneously combust. <laughs> so it's, it is it is very much um, a product of its time. It is the 60s and it's more about titillation and not even titillation in a particularly erotic sense. It, it's a very camp, tongue-in-cheek kind of feel to it. Um, although I think we'll come to it maybe later, but I think Fonda wasn't entirely happy with um, with the way... Um, it dealt with with sexuality, certainly of her character, um, but it was her then husband, like you said, um, Fletch Roger uh, Vadim, French director, um, who expressed interest uh, in in making the picture. Uh, th- now this is c- conflicting reports. I was looking into this. Um, he apparently Fonda was offered the role after other people had been offered the role, and it was only when. Um, when she was offered the role that she then said, I'll do it if, if my husband can direct. But there's other reports that say that he was quoted, uh, Roger Woodford was quoted as saying that he wanted to do a comic book film. He liked comics, which of course then, don't forget, they're only like 30 or 40 years old. It's quite a new new art form. 
and I think there's a New York Times article from from the mid '60s where he was he was talking about how much he he liked comics and maybe wanted to bring some of that into his his next picture. Then, um, and, and this is a comic book movie in a literal sense as well. I, I haven't said it. it's based on a French comic book. Um, but then I I think to really understand Barbarella, you need to understand uh, producer. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis. Yeah, <laughs> Dino. Oh my days. Dino. <laughs> um, and I call him Dino. Uh, <laughs> Dino. He he acquired the rights for the picture, and he was the guy that decided to film it immediately after. And I do mean immediately after another French comic book adaptation of his, Danger Diabolic, which um, yeah. some listeners. You've got that one as well, haven't you? I did, how did you know? How did you know that? I, I don't know how I remember. I must have been flipping through your case logic once, or maybe I've seen, maybe listeners, I've seen the Master A to Z list. Oh, which yeah. Which probably you might requires done, a ton it? of yeah. augmentation now, because that will have been three or four years ago. But sorry, you were, so you were saying mm. about Dangerous Diabolique, and you were, I think you were going to say listeners knew it because of. Well, some listeners may know it from Mystery Science Theatre 3000. That there is an episode where they riff over Danger to Bullet. Oh. But, I mean, but like I said, I, I know it from my own DVD collection. Um, I know it from Beastie we'll, Boys, Body Moving. Oh, you, yeah. Oh, really? The Fat Boy Slim remix of Body Moving. Terrific video where he's stealing oh, the sauce, yeah. stealing the recipe for a fondue sauce. Uh, and yes. it, it interpolates and uh, essentially samples, in, in a visual sense, scenes from Danger Diabolique. Ah. And you're so much more sophisticated than me because you say <laughs> diabolique. I say diabolic. But it's with a K, um, isn't it? So I think you're right. Uh, no, I think, it's with, I think it's with a C. I think it's with a C. Am I going to have to Google this on air? Yeah, do it. Always an occupational hazard. I'll give them a little um, elevator music. It does have... Um... <laughs> oh, it is with a K. You're right. Yeah. And with a colon, no less. Much like Mission, Mission Impossible. Yeah. So it's danger, diabolic. We might get to that when I get to D in my DVD collection, which might be the year 3000. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it then. But in both films, Barbarella and Danger Diabolic, they're, they're fetish outfits. In both films, the imagination of, of the set design and the, um, and the costumes runs absolutely wild. And like I said, it was Dino who decided to shoot these back to back after he acquired the rights because he could reuse a lot of the sets. So there are literally sets that you see across both pictures because they were filmed mere weeks apart, uh, and there's not a whole lot, you know, a whole, whole lot have been done to them as well. These films have that late sixties aesthetic. For anyone who's not familiar with them, um, Barbarella, uh, the film, like I said, it's a sci-fi film, and we'll come to like the plot in a moment. But, but Jane Fonda is a kind of space ranger of sorts, a, 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 a space lady. Like there's so little of this film is 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 is. is uh, explained in any meaningful way you do just go along you have to accept it and and move move and go along with it um and her ship her spaceship is you know there's so much shag carpet and wonderful ornamental uh, 60s mid-century um ornament ornamental aesthetic throughout it's um it's definitely the kind of of place you just want to have as an apartment or a flat and but of course, she's in space and she has a little cape, and that's uh, that's fun. So, so it's incredibly camp, incredibly tongue in cheek, and um, uh, I, I haven't made a note of the guys that guy the guys that put the soundtrack together. Um, I know that one or two soundtracks were thrown out, but it's got um, '60s lounge music throughout. Mm. It's, it's that is the aesthetic that we've got, and the sets and the set design. Like I said, the art direction of it is 
fantastic. So by today's standards, although some of the action sequences might seem static, some of it, the camera might seem relatively static, I do enjoy this in the same way I enjoyed a lot, enjoy a lot of those Sean Connery Bonds, where you look at a set, and Fletch, you might help me out with this, it looks like a set, but because it's such a big set and so lavish, it's all the more impressive for it, somehow. Does does that make any sense at all, or did you do you want me to, to expand on it and d- dig my grave further? Um, do you mean the sheer scale of it is the impressive? The sheer scale of it is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And like to use an obvious example, maybe um, because we all know Austin Powers, and I think people can at least picture that in their mind's eye. But of course, Austin Powers riffs heavily on the is it the sixty eight James Bond? Yeah, like um, the Ken Adam design. Yeah. Yeah, you only live twice, which is under. Under the volcano, and it's this huge, vast set filled with minions and people going around on little scooter things. Yeah. And there's something about that. And you know, e- even when the invading force uh, enter the lair at the end of the Bond movie, uh, they use the same shot from multiple angles of the guys just dangling on the ropes as they're coming in, abseiling in, uh, because they know, like, a, a it's going to cost so much money to take this, sh- get this one shot in camera. So we'll take, we'll, we'll play it back in multiple angles, and it's not like there'll ever be a home video format one day where you can perfectly freeze frame it and notice. Yeah. People will never notice it. So, they're getting bang for the buck for the um the size of the set, um, and also the fact that it just costs so much for for, for, for it to be done. But but this is. If you imagine the Blue Peter set in the 70s and 80s, but blown up to 100 times, uh, and then with some uh, with wonderfully lavish, lavish kind of um, augmentation, it's it, it. This is how this film um, plays out. So there's some wonderful um, uh, city, uh, sorry, um, I should say planetary surfaces, which are blatantly set. But there's something about the scale of it. There's something about where you can tell that the map paint, where the map painting does start. And you can tell that it's a matte painting, but it looks like a labyrinth that goes off for infinity. Um, th- 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 I think there's something very charming about it. And I, want, I do wonder if it's... I would love to have been a person in the 60s watching this in, in the movies to, to know like how I took it. I was reading some contemporary reviews, and it wasn't well-reviewed. People thought it was pretty vulgar for its um, eroticism and its sexual nature. But... Um, I I think I would love to have been a person there on first viewing who could have seen it in in all of that psychedelic um, glory and 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 really taken the set design for what it was. So anyway, but Edgar Wright, I, I made a note that Edgar Wright, um, when he was making Scott Pilgrim, he he noted noted of Dino's other film Danger Diabolic and and these mad Italian films of the era that they don't make any attempt to make it look realistic. And I think that's what I'm getting at. Mm. So um, so it's the composition. Um, so he, he actually says that there's this kind of try-anything attitude to it um, with the staging that that, that that really spoke to him of, and that, that fed into Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So, like I say, no attempt to make it look real or realistic. I don't think you're ever supposed to buy that she's in a spaceship or that she's crash-landed on an alien planet or whatever. But nevertheless somehow it, it it excites you and uh, entices you into that world. So we know that Dino went on to make 500-odd films in his career, and Fletch, I'm sure you can name a few, but our very own John Milius and Conan the Barbarian, he yeah, worked with yeah. David Lynch even on things like Blue Velvet and Dune. Yeah. But I think I think if you want to go... So, if you're not familiar with Barbarella and you want to go somewhere in your mind's eye, 
notably, of course, he, he did work and very heavily on, on Flash Gordon, which was just post-Star Wars and uh, in 1980, I think, came out, you know, the Queen soundtrack, etc. I mean, Flash Gordon, in my opinion, is essentially a kind of family-friendly version of Barbarella in, in a lot of its approach. Mm. Um, that that would be my my take on it. But anyway, going back to the director Rod of Dim in, in in a New York Times article in the late sixties, just as they were, the film was coming out, he described what he was looking to achieve with Barbarella, and I think this is kind of key to the film, which is very light on plot, um, pretty light on characterization, <laughs> um, heavy on the kind of just eroticism, like I say, the camp uh, titillation of it. But he does talk about how he wants to um, depict. He wanted to depict a, a, a futuristic morality, and and that Barbarella has no guilt about her body, and he wanted to make something beautiful out of eroticism. Now, of course, previously he was doing um, a, a lot of more, ver, very much more dramatic and and lavish erotic French dramas. So there's and God created woman in 1956. Mm, yeah. Which is not not to be mistaken for the 1988 remix uh, remake, which he he also directed as well. <laughs> he remade his own film, but he, he was making these much more lavish films, which which were deeply rooted and embedded in in French eroticism. This was very much more a camp, late 60s psychedelic, uh, tongue in cheek take on it. But I think that innocence of it is is key, because at the end of the film, one of the antagonists who's turned good the Black Queen, says that Barbarella was saved in the 11th hour at the end of the picture by her innocence. And I think Fonda throughout as well does play the role completely straight. So in terms of Jane Fonda and her role, like I say, she's some kind of space ranger. It's never truly uh, explained. But we do get a four and a half minute opening, which is a very psychedelic striptease a weightless striptease, no less, and and this is obviously the first thing that um, that 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 got <laughs> raised the eyebrow of a teenage Luke little boy at the time. <laughs> a weightless striptease uh, with 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 Barbarella, space ranger, space adventurer, whatever you want to call her. Um, of course, we're very excited because this striptease is uh, is is in zero gravity. It is exciting. Jane Fonda is very uh, arousingly removing p- uh, pieces of clothing. Um, I believe to, to to get the effect of weightlessness, which is half decent, I think they suspended the camera above a pane of glass and Jane Fonda had to lie on her side as she was slowly stripping uh, to give this sense. And then, of course, the, sa- the camera is slowly spinning around. We get the sense that she's weightless. Um, but, of course, because it's not truly zero gravity, there's something about it. Because it's the camera movement uh, rolling very slowly, smoothly, I think there's something about it that is like... It, it it just plays out like a late sixties music video. Not that there were music videos in the late sixties as such, but it does play out more like a music video than um, and what you imagine if you think of something, if you think of psychedelia, it, it it's that aesthetic that that I think maybe would pop into your head. Not necessarily the eroticism, but just the movement of the camera, just the coloured backgrounds, just the colour palette of it, and everything.
I won't go into all the plot because you're going to get the gist pretty quick. The setup is is immediate. So after that four and a half minutes um, of the of of the striptease, which, which sadly never truly reaches um, its full uh, climax as such, because just as she takes all of her clothes off, the credits um, which are animated cover her naked body. So. That, what a shame. That like bit I say, I've seen. That bit I've seen. You, you've seen that yeah. bit? Now, apparently there are different cuts, and the original theatrical cut um, did have... Uh, I think it, there was a bit more nakedness involved. But um, as it turned out, when they re-released it for, um, I think, in the late 70s, so almost 10 years later, 77, I think they rush-released it literally off the back of the success of Star Wars. They gave it a new subtitle, Queen of the Galaxy or something of the Galaxy, Warrior of the Galaxy, Space Warrior of the Galaxy or hmm. something like that. Um, and I think it's that version which has basically been prevalent ever since because then it got the R rating um, as opposed to X. And as a result of that, it's it, that's what's been subsequently re-released. Um and I, I, so I'm pretty sure that's the version that I would have just on my standard Region 2 Barbarella DVD with, with no frills, special features, which I just picked up in HMV many, many years ago. Um, so she's assigned by the President of Earth. Uh, to, to, <laughs> this is it. So this, you just laugh. This is it. This is the movie. It's, it's, she's assigned by the President of Earth, who comes on the video screen, and they have no shame of the naked, uh, no, no embarrassment of the naked body. She's completely naked after the striptease, um, which is just purely for the camera. I guess she's just undressing because she had to. Uh, the President of Earth appears on the video screen, and uh, we, she's completely naked. You can see just just see the back of her, so you don't see bare breast or anything. But uh, he he then gives her her assignment and says, "Oh, don't worry about putting anything on. It's fine." Uh, he proceeds to tell her that uh, a Dr. Duran Duran, yes, it is that Duran Duran, that is the namesake of uh, 80s uh, heartthrobs Duran Duran, although I believe the spelling is slightly different, but that is, I believe, where they got the name from. Uh, this guy's gone missing. He was, um, he, he, was, he was a scientist. And that's pretty much all you need to know. He, he was an inventor um, of a laser, uh, a laser weapon, and he's gone missing. And the laser weapon is called the Positronic Ray, so immediately you know what kind of thing you're dealing with here. A positronic ray. What a word and a name that <laughs> is. But leaders of the earth fear that obviously that, that would fall into the wrong hands. Barbarella immediately perplexed that why on earth, and this is my point about uh, Joan Fonda playing innocent, playing it straight, uh, doesn't know why anyone would ever dream of creating a weapon. Because they, of course, in the future have moved far beyond uh, weapons and, and, and the, need, the need to have them. So uh, so that's the kind of um, future that we're dealing with. Um, and then we, we kind of go from set piece to set piece. Um, she, uh, she crash lands on this ice planet, and this is one of the sets I'm referring to, this vast ice planet, which looks like the set of Blue Peter in the, in the late 70s, scaled up heavily. There's some children with, who then attack her with these terrifying, scary dolls, that have biting mouths. It is truly disturbing. Lex is watching it with me and was so freaked out by this stuff. Um, but she's saved, and this is the recurring theme. It's pitfall after pitfall, um, in much the same way Star Wars is, and she's always saved by someone. But because the plot is so utterly wafer thin, it becomes pretty apparent and uh, pretty early on um, as to as to oh, this is this is the pattern of things here. But she's saved by this guy who uh, knows nothing of her. Um, 
nothing of her earth ways. He's um he 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 has to catch these kids. He's a he's a catchman. That's his that's his um profession and he's called Mark Hand. I mean he's got he's got this great like sledge thing, sled with 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 a with a with a sail on. That's all very exciting. We've already gone past a bit where they she has like a manta ray thing which just pulling her along on a sled which looks like a very sad kind of bin liner just just <laughs> being dragged along the bag. So 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 the, the special effects vary from being kind of you know impressive set design to to to, to some of the creature effects it's just they're not even trying there's, there's no point it's just there i think for kitsch even for the time but he um this guy convinces her to to make love to him um because he saved her life and that's what they should probably do so she says okay i don't know what good it'll do but we can make love and then she she proceeds to try and take this pill and then touch hands. And if anyone's ever seen Demolition Man, I'm pretty sure... Isn't this how they have sex in the future in, in Demolition Man? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Essentially, so, yeah, they, so... they, uh, they, they don skull caps, and mm. it's a, a very intense erotic experience without touching, and, um, and John Spartan moves towards Sandra Bullock, and she said, oh, what are you doing? And then he talks about kissing... Oh, what does he call it? Um... He refers to it as something ridiculous like Mattress Mambo or Hunker Junker. <laughs> and she says, oh, kissing, exchanging bodily fluids. There's so many germs involved. Well, I mean, and, and this is it. And I, I, I do wonder if, if there's an element of that from that was taken, taken from Barbarella. But he convinces her. I think they even mentioned the fantastic line. She needs to adjust her tongue box. Uh, that's her. Oh, that's her universal I know translation. About that. It's like tool. a babblefish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this guy doesn't talk. English, you know, he doesn't speak English, doesn't make any sense. So she says, I'll have to adjust my tongue box. She says that earlier with the, when the kids are, uh, are about to kill her with the biting dolls as well. But he convinced her to make love the old-fashioned way. And um, she lies back and uh, on the bed, and, uh, and, and, and then we just cut immediately to his sail sled thing. Going in like a figure eight, madly. Just it's 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 just like a Warner Brothers cartoon. Going in a mad figure of eight, and then we cut after that, of course, to to her being incredibly satisfied because this uh, this slightly more primitive man is um, is obviously all all man and was able to satisfy her and give her an awakening in a certain way. So this is this is what we're dealing with. I I wouldn't necessarily call it a progressive role by today's standards, but I do think it's a product of that of of, of late sixties post pill post-sexual awakening for, for, for America and the Western exactly. world. Exactly. That it was progress 50, 55 mm. years ago. That level of sexual expression, that sexual liberation was progressive. And what's progressive changes over time. But back then, yeah, it, mm. j- just to see that was making progress. So that to say it's all right to celebrate this, to, to, to depict this is fine. It won't mean that society comes tumbling down. We won't see cathedrals explode look the plot is wafer thin the action sequences are are pretty dull i think even by the standards maybe of the time um at least for a cinema piece um set design fantastic really imaginative costumes brilliant i think the fact she plays it so straight so innocent there's a part of me that thinks is that supposed to be almost like a kind of sex kidney thing I, I don't know it's yeah. supposed to be alluring maybe it is supposed to be alluring maybe it's supposed to be like the innocent schoolgirl element there I, there's probably a shred of it 
maybe more than a shred, but I do think throughout the film that there's a part where she's not really a bimbo. She's never portrayed to be a bimbo. She's portrayed as someone who is, um, through her sheer innocence, is, um, is, is a force for good in the world. In a world where they're, they're, it's filled with bad people. Uh, so I won't go through every plot point, but as on her quest for Duran Duran, she goes to the big palace fortress place, which is where the bad guys are. And um, to get there, it's, it's, she goes via the labyrinth, which is where she meets an angel, kind of a fallen angel, Pygar, who's blind. And he only sees the good in people. I guess that's the that's the pretty loose metaphor there. And at one point they describe the labyrinth, which is a gorgeous map painting extending off into the distance in much much same way that a couple of decades later labyrinth had as well. He says at one point that the labyrinth is where all the good people go because uh, in this obviously post-apocalyptic kind of place where the bad guys rule, um, all the good people, such as a fallen angel uh, who is pure of heart, um, is forced into this labyrinth in kind of eternal purgatory. So there is this ongoing theme that all the pure of heart are ostracized from, from, from society. And, and, and of course, it's, it's her innocence later on, which, which, which wins, wins the day, as it were. These are very loose themes. It's not highbrow stuff. This is me um, you know, re- really lo- reading the film in between the lines, reading the intertextuality of it and, 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 and taking, a, taking a stab at what I think um, the film is about and uh, reading some of those interviews just as it was coming out, etc., that's certainly my take on it and i do think it is a product of that that awakening i do think it is a piece of progressive cinema although it doesn't have an overt agenda but also it's really stupid camp sci-fi fun designed to titillate prepubescent boys which i I do think there's room for that and not to sound too cynical but where hardcore porn is so prevalent on smartphones kids you know no barrier to entry and all of that uh, I, <laughs> I know I sound like an old man and I know that a lot of people have made this point who I don't necessarily respect that much but I do think there is an innocence in the day where this was the sort of introduction you, you may have had um, to to sexual fantasy or whatever it might be I think that I think there's there, there's a difference those days are gone um, and and for, for a kid these days their, one of their first um, sexual encounters will not be Jane Fonda doing a zero gravity naked striptease uh, in Barbarella. That's kind of my take on, on Barbarella, but the, the, the climax, and I, that p- pun is intended, <laughs> is, is when she is um, subjugated to a, uh, a pleasure machine. And, 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 and this, is, this, is, this is what I mean. This pleasure machine is designed to give you orgasms, I guess, and it's supposed to kill her off. So she starts to enjoy it to begin with, but at some point it's going to kill her. And that's what the bad guy's saying. I won't give away who the bad guy is, but the bad guy's saying this will kill you, you know. And um, it should be fatal sexual pleasure. Now this machine explodes and blows up and she destroys it whilst in the throes of passion. Uh, because the machine can't keep up with her, and and that's what that's what is said. That the bad guy says, "You've exhausted all of its power. It couldn't keep up with you. Have you no shame?" <laughs> and that's that's the sort of point of it, I guess. She doesn't have any shame. Why should she? Why yeah. should she? She was having a female orgasm. Yeah. Of course, she has no shame. And 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 that's what I mean by it. it's a product of its of its sixties period. Um, but uh, I know that Jane Fonda at the time 
kind of uh, wrote it off. And I, th- she'd had a couple of. Um, she already had a reputation, didn't she? There'd been a couple of instances where there'd been sort of minor sex scandals that for the for the time were, were a big deal. I'm not talking sex tapes, but I'm talking about just a bit of nudity in film or in advertising that, that she was involved in. And um, as a result of that, she was already kind of public enemy number one for the more morally conservative in America. Um, and I, I believe she was one of the first American actresses to, to have a kind of a nude scene or, or, or in, a, in a European film. So there's she was already public enemy number one in that in that sense, um, but by conservative America. Um, but but for me, I think in hindsight, you can look at it as, a, as an interesting artifact of, of late 60s psychedelia um, of European sensibilities in, a, in an American film designed primarily for american audiences and what i love i think the most about it is because of course in the late 60s early 70s we were terrible over here in dear old blighty for our um the carry-on pictures the uh all those handyman pictures and all all those oh yeah the confessions movies yeah the confessions movies um and barbarella was the second biggest picture in the uk uh, in 1968, it's year of release, yeah. and I, I find that not surprising in the least, <laughs> and uh, and on some level um, quite satisfactory. So th- that's Barbara. There's so many great like, stories from the production. I know it was a bit grueling. Jane Fonda did kind of write it off uh, immediately thereafter in the, in the years to come, and of course her marriage to the director did not last. It, it they were they were a couple years um, left together and, and then moved on, but. For me, as um, like I say, just just coming into my own sexual awakening as a young a young uh, teenager, Barbarella was formative. It was definitely late night TV viewing when I was having to keep the volume down and <laughs> um, and, and 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 keep it a secret. This is what I was watching, and it, it's great as well because it's one of those things that then pre-internet you. You're the, I mean, I, I guess I didn't. I wasn't a teenager in a truly pre-internet age, but it was pre-Wikipedia. It was pre the internet as we know it and i did not have a computer in the house we didn't have a computer until very late so therefore for me it was essentially pre-internet and it's the sort of film that once you've seen it you then start to get the references whether that is an alicia's attic uh, 90s cd single or whether it's um references just 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 in the wider pop culture you start to get the in jokes about things and um it's one of those cult films that in the truest sense of the word cult and and uh yeah, it was it was a big deal for me. It was one of those first things where I thought felt like I'm in on the secret a little bit. Do you know what I mean? I think a few of the points you've hit on there, I think there's a point where nostalgia is actually a fondness for a happy medium. Clearly, Barbarella was an important film to a generation of young men. It's somewhat nostalgic to look back. As, as Aidan and I have said, when we did the Boogie Nights episode on the electronic mm. labyrinth he talked about his sexual awakening was to kelly mcdonald in train spotting yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. um mine uh, was far more conservative i just liked winona Ryder, and i didn't know why is is how mm. it was when i thought, first saw edward scissorhands and she's blonde in that as well but i liked her and i liked her in mermaids as well and th- there's a happy medium there for people f- getting to grips with sexuality without having to go the full way as as you've talked about without having mm. easy accessibility and, and when i say um a nostalgia and, and how barbarella was impactful on a generation and within that generation on on a set of young men uh, to the extent that clearly 
Nick Rhodes and Simon Le Bon, etc. wanted to name their band after one of the characters in the film. I can imagine a time when people are excited because they know it's coming on television and they might only have the opportunity to see it once in that five-year period. You can imagine uh, those young art students and uh, artistically inclined people and uh, those that were into glam rock in you know get uh let, let, let me try and get the, the timeline right if you're 12 13 14 in the early 70s getting into glam rock and then barbarella is going to be on the television around that time because as we talked about in that christmas episode the lag was astonishing five eight years from cinema release to finally turning it out on on television you can imagine people excited to see that and and experiencing new things and a gentle nudging into from juvenilia into adolescence into a, a, a kind of a, a sexual flowering and if that's been lost and our understanding is that it probably has yeah I think that's bad I don't think it's nostalgic to say oh it was nice when it was like that I think it's not a regression we've gone beyond a point that was preferable everyone says that right uh, not to just play devil's advocate but like every, every successive generation thinks that um we've gone too far right that 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 we missed the good old days 20 30 years ago this this has gone too far that was the happy medium and now now it's too far the other way i'm sure that yes people will be saying that again in 30 years right surely but well what i wonder what i wonder is if in in a few years time we'll see a set of teenagers uh again i'm trying to get the timeline straight in my head It'd have to be people born about 2005, I suppose, people who are 14, 15 now. If in a few years we'll find that they've, to an extent, rejected the easy availability of hardcore pornographic images. And, because uh, I already argued they that... Start that to co- they start to cover people back up. Yeah, because I've already argued that... Um, there's a, a puritanism and a prudishness in our culture right now, which I think is a direct result of the Puritan American mindset at the end of the century and the beginning of this century. Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Will They, Won't They, Purity Rings, the Jonas Brothers, all of those Disney Channel stars who it was always look but don't touch. That's what Americans have always been like. You know, as we talk about a European sensibility uh, applied to a film with an American star and that's one reason why Barbarella became the cultural touchstone that it was in America and, and mm. to an extent in, in, in Britain as well was whereas on the continent these ideas were far more prevalent and God Created Women was in the 50s that's um, it, yeah. and yeah so I, I don't want us to become I don't want us to uh, assert prudishness and puritanism but it would be interesting if with that easy availability young people in a few years time say well i can get that wherever i want but that doesn't really interest me it, that's you know that's something that old people like that kind of stuff i like to see a man wearing some clothes i like to see a lady wearing a few more clothes you know there's an element of titillation in what's uh, being held back i think um i think you're being optimistic I don't know. <laughs> well, I just think I think that it's it's not just the pornography. We're getting we're going way off topic and into a tangent now. But you know, I work in marketing, and um, not that not that I work in in the realms of uh, of big TV ads, etc. But um, it, we know that um, even to this day, to an extent, it's not in vogue at the moment. Maybe so much in in the but by the for, the for the liberals who are making these these TV ads in the industry. But there has been a long period of, of 
music videos and 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 adverts of sexualizing um youngsters and 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 and, and glamorizing sex and um i don't know dude i think I think people always want sex. It's such a human urge. And I think kids... I don't know if kids will... There'll be, there'll be a rebuttal and there'll be a cover-up movement. I don't know. I think kids just want to have lots and lots of sex. And they don't <laughs> quite know how to do it. They, and they don't know how to do it yet. So that fascination of, of accessing it on the hardcore sex on their phone or whatever it might be, I, I think when it's so accessible, well, there's no barrier to entry. I don't think there'll be... I, I can't see, like, a big cover-up movement happening with with kids. I really can't. Well... But are you talking about sort of, like, 18, 19-year-olds or something, or...? I th- I th- but then, right, but then so you're talking... Uh, th- that'll only happen if you monetize pornography again. I don't know, man. God, we're going kids off wanna, into a you, way different you, thing. You're right. Uh, teenagers want to shag. However... What well, you're coming at it with Western attitudes, Western Judeo-Christian mm. attitudes in Europe in 2019. Um, mm. Half the world doesn't think in those terms. Half the world is far less permissive, um, far mm-hmm. more repressive, and increasingly, uh, Western cultures are um, welcoming and have within them a, mm. a, a, elements of socii- uh, other cultures and societies who come from. Uh, suppressive or even regressive cultures and aren't yet caught up with us if we could even say that we're ahead because I think they'd argue it and from what I'm saying you know like maybe we've gone a little bit too far and so there might be five or ten percent of the teenagers out there who are from cultures where it's utterly anathema to even Mm. show a thigh let alone be watching porno and so you know once these may be their interaction with it and as you've made a really good point as well, that their interaction with it, and as far as that interaction can be monetized, mm. will make things a little more interesting. And, and don't forget that, I mean, it isn't cynical to always follow the money, as Redford and Hoffman say in All the President's Men. Um, mm. If an advert is embracing diversity, it's because it's fiscally sound. No doubt in my mind, like, the, the, the reason, it's not just because it's, nice liberal people that make ads at the moment because they're 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 from an educated background therefore they, they're coming out as liberals uh from the the higher education system and as a result of that that they're the people that are permeating these messages through um marketing materials it's it's not just that you're right yeah. everything's been costed by um every corporation ever um and, yeah. and they know where to put their marketing spend and they know that if if diversity or body image, you know, or, or all of these these kind of uh, what, what you might call progressive ideas are, are there, um, it's all been costed. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, that's why when people, when HSBC come out with their ad about um, we're not an island, we're, we're a big world and we are pro, it's basically HSBC saying we're pro Remain. Yeah. With Rich Diardi on the ads. They've costed it up and they know for well they don't need the leave voters. <laughs> they don't need them yeah. because they don't have the money in the bank accounts and they won't be doing the investments and stuff. And the so... richest people are going to bank with who they bank with anyway. You know, some uh, Tory donor isn't going to turn his nose up to HSBC because they've said, we're all about that. He'll just say, well, what's the uh, what's the rate of interest? Yeah, cool. Yeah, That's good enough for fucking me and my millions. But, you know, I was having this conversation with a colleague the other day because I was... Um, I was covering the one show, the Little Mix were on it, and I thought, 
Fucking hell, this is a bit much. One of their lyrics was, you keep me wetter than a bayou. And I thought... You keep me wetter than a bayou? That sounds made up. Yeah. Really? That's that a, was the this lyric? This is 7.22, 7.25 on a Friday evening, BBC One. And this is making me sound prudish, isn't it? They had on the programme, uh, uh, um, one of their pieces was a couple of dads who went to little mix shows with their kids. The kids were with them, the dads were there as well. And the bit was meant to be, hey, they've, uh, you know, now their fathers have become fans of the little mix. And the daughters were mm. seven, eight years old. Um, and I, I thought, shh, you don't really, you, I don't think you want nine, ten-year-olds singing those lyrics and i mentioned it to mm. a long-standing pal at work he, he said it was ever thus what about madonna and i said well mm. i don't know man like madonna like a virgin well yeah th- this is what he said and i said well madonna was an adult speaking to adults when she came out i mean if you think about she was in the breakfast sorry she was i don't want to confuse people she was in a band called the breakfast club about 82 83 but when she emerged in the middle of the 80s she was essentially fully formed desperately seeking susan get into the groove um and an adult speaking to adults yes of course i'm sure there were 10 year olds that dug her vibe as well but she was essentially speaking with the records were being spun in gay clubs and stuff exactly yeah marketed towards prepubescence she made the sex book uh the films she made weren't marketed to children body of evidence by dino that's an erotic thriller with willem dafoe Who's that girl? Shanghai Surprise. Those are marketed at adults. Those are films for adults. She was uh, a mature woman of her twen- in her 20s speaking to the sexual liberation of someone in their 20s, someone taking control. Um, but then my pal linked me to a precise lyric in a Mannix song because I'd said, and now this is pa- Little Mix, this is Pablum, this is inappropriate, this is Pablum to sell Coca-Cola, and Homeboy linked me to the Mannix track, Slash and Burn. And he did so in a way I don't know how to. I'm very admirant of those that can identify the precise second and then put that in the URL. I've seen it in the YouTube comments and I've never been able to do it and thought was impressed as well. Homeboy linked me to Slash and Burn by the Mannix and this precise lyric. That's the perfect rebuttal cast. Holy smackerel. You, yeah. You've blown me right out of the water. I, 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 yeah. Nevertheless, I think my point remains. Um, but I, I don't want us to be inured by the notion that people were saying this 30 years ago. And within my friendship circle is a mental health nurse, works directly with juveniles, and she cannot believe the stuff that they're up to. I'll put it in these terms. This is what my, my, my friend was telling us about. There's teenagers that don't even realise that they are literally criminalising themselves. They're, uh, they're creating pornographic images that are illegal. They're mm. becoming criminals by doing that. Then they're sending that around. The anecdote that was given to us was that within a WhatsApp group, um, uh, a teenage girl had sent an image to her boyfriend and that boyfriend had circulated it around the WhatsApp group, including to that kid's mother... And he did that because he thought it was funny and not even in a malicious way, but he thought it was a, a level of banter. That I can't connect. Right. I can't connect with that. Well, no. it's not bullying if it's banter, Fletch. So. Uh, but no, and it, it, it wasn't it wasn't meant to um, it wasn't meant to demean the individual. It was more like, look what's happened here. Whoa, astounding stuff. Uh, but but another, we're always wary of the 80s 
uh, crew, the the group of Democrats led by um, oh, Al Gore's wife. I, I feel terrible. Tipper. Um, exactly. Typical. And, she, and, and, and the whole anti, you know, the, the, the parental advisory sticker on music, the, the Prince thing, because... Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it was words people said uh, on pop records and they censored it. And these were the liberals of the time, or at least the liberals, you know, in, in, in power and positions of power. And we're like, well, these are words people are saying. Chill out. But I get you're saying there's a difference uh, when it comes to sexualizing kids. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing it to themselves. Uh, and they don't even they don't have the context and the perspective to understand that what they're doing is a bit full on. Uh, I don't know, maybe they'll grow up more adjusted than us. I really doubt it. We've stumbled into something that we haven't prepared for, and it's a bloody no. it's a bloody diverting and very interesting conversation to which we'll have to return. I want to watch Barbarella as soon as possible. As I said, I've never seen it properly. I, I want to understand my reaction to it and, and wonder what kind of what films like that are being made today. Uh, if there are contemporary analogues for what Vadimon Fonda did with Barbarella. I can't believe I haven't ever seen it properly, especially with the, all the, the time that we've spent together. But then, as you've described it, Luke, it does sound like maybe it's an alone time film for you. No, I mean, I watched it with Lex. Like, it's not impressive. Like I say, it's tame. You know, that mm. you don't actually have a sex scene. They cut away. You see Jane Fonda after she's had sex, and you go, oh, she's had sex, and, and isn't that funny? Yeah, but to, to, qu- to quote Heath Ledger, I like that. <laughs> that sounds I'm into that yeah I don't need I don't need to I don't need to necessarily see anything but at the same time I would I mean it's it's a it's a point that's been argued particularly is that um the sex scene has been eliminated from Hollywood movies well because no one cares anymore because you can get it anywhere else potentially yeah but in in a portraying realistically and honestly the human experience not that Hollywood gives a fuck about that most of the time, but if one want, if if that's the in, intention, then you do need sex scenes. Um, but it's mainly uh, ghettoized into the Fifty Shades of Grey. So those three films, uh, the first one did colossal box office, and I understand the other two did all right as well. So now it's got back to that that we still have the erotic thriller, the throwback to the uh, late eighties, early nineties, final analysis, basic instinct, fatal attraction. But that's been yeah. ghettoized. It was the case that 90s films, 80s films, 70, 70s films in particular would have sex scenes. Now, we don't have those, but I suppose uh, because um, in order to be successful, a film needs to hit that PG-13, that 12 rating. Yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that's a major part of it, isn't it? And, and, um, but now, but and, now, and, and what, you, what I was going to say is there are no films like this anyway, because this, even though it is titillation and it's erotica and it had an X rating, it's a, it's a film for adults. Yeah. Um, at least at the time, it was an adult's film. Whereas now, we make films for grown man babies who go to yeah. <laughs> go, go to see. Which I, I saw Endgame. I enjoyed it. But, but to this extrapolate, is, this, is, this is what we're dealing with now. To extrapolate my point, it's probably harmful to a developing audience. And when I say that, I'm talking about young people. It's probably harmful to them to have ninety percent of cinema without any honest representation of sexual desire sexual interaction and then the only films that show that are 18 rated uh, 50 shades of grey films which are only about i'm not talking about actual pornography but films which are only about a sexual experience it needs to be integrated it needs to be you don't want kids to just think oh well you know there's all these films i've i've no understanding of sex at all but if i wanted to understand it then i'd go and see a film that's only about that 
now I have to get back into that mindset, the mindset I was in on Saturday night. I went to a double bill and I have two people to thank for this. Stephen Dougie Douglas and Gary mm. Jobbo Job. Did you get married 27 months ago? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. yeah All right. Been about that. Yeah. So six to eight weeks before that, I think it was while me and Dougie were halfway up a mountain or I was despairing with some weird flu sat in the back of the car that Dougie said, Beyond the Black Rainbow, what do you reckon to that? I immediately thought that he was talking about one that, uh, a contemporary film that was secretly shot at Disneyland in black and white for well cheap and did the festival rounds and uh, attracted some modest acclaim. It, I can't even remember the name of that one, but it wasn't that, it wasn't that. I didn't actually know what Beyond the Black Rainbow was. So once we came off your stag do, which is where we was at, I looked into it, remembered it, but never had the uh, occasion to, to really watch it. But it's always stayed in my mind, thanks to Dougie. And a few weeks ago, Gary Job fell off the video club on Facebook, mentioned that he was going to a double bill. Now, now this sounds like someone from Barbarella, Panos Cosmatos the son right. of George yeah. P. Cosmatos, who directed Cobra and Tombstone. Uh, Gary Job told me that he was going to a double bill of Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy, which everyone knows about now. So everyone knows this director's second film. It's the Nicolas Cage nutty one. You've heard of it, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the one yeah. that uh, Aidan declared absolutely shit. He, <laughs> <laughs> and he said it may, maybe it makes sense if you're into metal. I was working on Saturday, but I arranged my weekend quite carefully so that I did have the latitude to finish work in the middle of the evening on Saturday and get along to the Prince Charles Cinema for this double bill and still make work the next day, even though I knew I was going to be um, getting home at, I didn't know, half past two, three in the morning. I thought was away. So it was, uh, I was lone wolfing it to meet a fella that I'd never before seen in person and only knew from the forums. And Gary Job is, uh, he's a folk hero to me. He looks like Arnie in Last Action Hero. Whenever I see pictures of him, he's at a convention wearing a tight red t-shirt. The broadest grin on his face, as though everything he encounters brings him joy. And it usually does because <laughs> he's standing next to a bloke dressed as a colonial marine, or he's got his head being held by the alien queen. But going into this, uh, all I really knew about, um, about Beyond the Black Rainbow and about Mandy was that Panos Cosmatos is the son of, as I said, the director George P. Cosmatos, who uh -huh. was successful in the 80s and into the 90s. And it was through the DVD royalties of Tombstone that this mm. lad somewhat turned his life around and committed those funds to his debut picture. He'd, he had a difficult 90s and, as I understand it, a, a difficult beginning of this century. His, uh, his old dear went in the late 90s from a long illness um, and his old man, the director, went about 12, 15 years ago and in between Panos Cosmatos lost himself in drugs and booze and as you can imagine like serious depression because one parent's dead and another one's on the way out and it's a horrible headspace to be in um and yeah i just knew it was some independent thing that this bloke had done and that had 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 been very impactful to dougie so i went along to what's essentially a midnight movie uh, hold on i need my beer for this mm. right so I roll up there uh, saturday at the prince charles cinema and i haven't slept much either i suppose i'd got six hours sleep so I was at that, um, in that awkward territory 
where I really want a beer, but I should have a coffee. I chose beer. I had three. And it, the, the double bill opens with Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, right, how to describe this motherfucker? <laughs> uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Right, Beyond the Black Rainbow is a dependency on pharmaceutical-grade sedatives against Mandy, which is straight-up LSD. They are both... They've been described as drug films, but I don't want I don't want listeners to misunderstand that because there is such precision in their in their execution in their depiction. This isn't uh, like you know when people might say the Big Lebowski is a stoner comedy or mm-hmm. a Pineapple Express or some or even like saying like, oh yeah two thousand one man it's the ultimate trip. This is yeah, yeah. this isn't just that that these pictures are particularly beyond the black rainbow are more like being subject to clinical levels of mood-altering sedatives. Beyond the Black Rainbow is essentially a science fiction picture set in the early 80s, and I think what it speaks strongest to, in terms of its themes, is the, the hippie dream falling into decay... And chaos. The film takes as its location a uh, uh, health farm, a, a 60s, 70s high tech health farm where um, innovative interaction between uh, psychoanalysis and a shitload of drugs will elevate one's consciousness. So, this is a 60s dream, but as the film begins in 1983, all of that hope of the hippie, of the hippie generation of flower power. Um, that's and it's a subject that you and I, Luke, talk about quite often. But that's been mm. utterly lost into something dark, and it, it mm. wears its um, it it wears its influences uh, openly, but not heavily. So we're talking about early Cronenberg, mm-hmm. Donald Camel, I'd say as well. There's a a couple of sequences and a particular shot, which while watching I thought THX. And it's nice to see a film so explicitly oh. reference THX. But when I say reference, it's... Um, you know when I say that Stranger Things by the Duffer Brothers, it never... I know where you're going yeah, with this. I know it, you're going it never transcends pastiche. But this picture, yeah. Beyond the Black Rainbow, it's although it's influenced, what uh, Cosmatos has said about it is that he took inspiration from... His childhood in the early 80s, going up and down the aisles of the video rental store and seeing the covers only of films that he knew his old man would never allow them to watch. And he generated Mm -hmm. films in his own mind about this. And that's the kind of film that he's made, a kind of recollection of a juvenile imprint. And I've heard this discussed before where in... um, Here's something that... (laughs) So it's not uh, as vague as all of that. Here's a reference point that at least some of the listeners may be able to latch onto. The video for Shady Lane by Pavement oh, is yeah. by Spike Jones, And he made it about the film Safe. But he'd never seen Safe. All he had was Sophia Coppola's explanation of the film Safe to him. Safe by Todd Haynes starring Julianne Moore. And so with only that explanation, that fired his imagination. And he made the video Shady Lane with what he thought maybe Safe was sort of like... <laughs> I know, <laughs> but that, yeah. yeah, and this is what Cosmatos has done with Beyond the Black Rainbow. So it has echoes from the 80s, but it, it feels so much more legitimate than any 
straight pastiche or any homage that we usually yeah, see. Yeah, because it's someone's interpretation of an 80s flick. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's, I, I'm only repeating you. Someone's interpretation of an 80s flip and they haven't actually seen one. And, and we all know, we've all been that kid uh, looking in the rental store up at the VHS covers and writing your own film. I mean, so so many of these exploitation pictures that I then watch later on, I mean, to a certain extent, Barbarella is an example. Um, I spit on your grave. Loads of these exploitation pics and, and, and slasher pics and stuff... When I eventually watched them years later, they were they were so much more either tame or, or disappointing than, than than the film had actually made in my mind. Right, the the, the, yeah. the picture I'd invented, and th- this feels like um, it is it is unbridled imagination. Um, yeah, run 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 rampant on on screen, and that's that is uh, extraordinarily exciting to me. It doesn't take a cue from these pictures. It's as I've said, a recollection of someone who didn't even see them, but just imagined, fuck, what could that be about? What could That's that be? That's amazing to me. And, and that even... is so much more exciting than regurgitating the, yeah, yeah. the Stranger Things. Because I, I, I enjoy Stranger Things. It's, it is fun. Uh, but, you know, we've all, been, we've all been there, haven't we? The fact that you've got the um, Stephen King typeface on the, on the, on the cover art, the, 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 the promotional materials... The, the fact that they've got that they they're referencing the clash that they've got the um referencing certain video games in the arcade they go to an arcade yeah. the fact that they dress as the ghostbusters the fact that they have evil dead posters on their wall when they never have evil dead posters on their wall because there were no such thing as a promotional evil dead poster you could pick up and buy in a shop let alone a place in a yeah. rural area you know we all know yeah. these, these these things it's been discussed to death in the uh, blogosphere not that anyone uses that term anymore um <laughs> but the the um yeah man this sounds refreshing i haven't i, I really I'm so tantalised that I, I need to see this film, and um, I, I'm very envious that you obviously went to see it. Um. You've reminded me how I be- I was slightly pedantic about Super 8 by J.J. Abrams. Fine film. Mm. I was I was down with it to an extent. One of those pictures where the Lovely first third... Blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. But like for 40 minutes, it's dynamite, and then it eventually has to execute a plot, and it, you know... It resolves in the way that you know it's going to resolve. But there's a point in it where um, the monster attacks a petrol station and the geezer in the petrol station is wearing headphones. Uh, he has a Sony Walkman. Uh, and I I checked it out and I realised it's utterly preposterous to include that. Now, I understand that the filmmakers required a conceit which would obscure the hearing of that character because mm. stuff is happening around him and we need for that character to be unaware of it so yeah. that he's surprised by the monster. But I narrowed yeah, yeah. it down and the time frame of the film means that the Sonny Walkman had been like, um, was on the Japanese market for a few weeks, maybe, yeah. maybe three months uh, at the time this film is meant to be set. And so to suggest that a six, uh, 17 year old uh, with his pocket money from working at a gas station, would have had any facility to obtain... No, it's, it's bullshit. It's bullshit, and, and that's one of the problems that you get, I, as you've just I, said I rem- with the Evil Dead poster. It's unrealistic. Yeah. Well, they didn't really do promotional posters back then, full stop. I mean, I guess I could be wrong, but it you didn't just go to your... Um, 
Well, it just wasn't the same. It was not as accessible. You didn't get promotional posts in the same way. It wasn't wasn't really a thing. You you, you cut stuff out of newspapers and magazines, right, and stuck them on your wall mostly. Yeah. Or, or got pullouts. That's what yeah. you pretty much did. Um, I I just don't think. And this this first hand experience will be lost. I think about it in in relation to football as well. Uh, when my old man was going to Fulham, he started going to Fulham in '67. First 10, 15 years of him supporting in the '60s and the '70s. Most people didn't wear football shirts to football. That's why no. there were clackers and scarves and silly hats and banners and pennants. They took that shit to show their colours. And I, yeah. I think that as we move through time, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next decade, when it, if it's depicting football matches in the 70s and in the 80s, it forgets that. It forgets that replica kits became a convention some point in the 80s and were prevalent yeah. in the 90s yeah but well, that wasn't f- they could they could market to people and sell them to them and, and make money out of hey we can yeah. sell the kits to the fans and, and make it, money yeah. out of it. it's uh, so uh, parochial uh, to think there, there was a time when they hadn't twigged that <laughs> well and, and also because no one had the time back then so um what was i reading the other day but basically football uh the the reason it was obviously the working class game the man's game was because um people were wear working very dreary uh factory jobs or or manual jobs all the week long and they wouldn't just work monday to friday they would work the saturday morning too so that whole the whole reason again sky capitalism has ruined the fact that now it's not at three o'clock because three o'clock was you'd knock off you'd grab your lunch you would go with your mates to the football game and after the, a very long, dreary, manual, labour-intensive week, you would then let off your steam with your rattle, your clacker, etc. Hmm. with your mates, not wearing a replica kit. No one, ain't no one had got the time to buy a replica kit, you know? <laughs> like when, when, like you're working and, and you're going there to be in a communal space and have that, have that shared experience. Anyway, sorry, dude, going off on a tangent. But yeah. The irony of all of this, listeners, is that as we speak, I'm literally wearing a Germany number five Mats Hummels <laughs> shirt. And, um, and I do always wear a, a Fulham replica shirt to the football. I'm the only one that the only one of us that does. I'm usually with my dad and my two uncles. Sometimes others come along as well, and I'm the only one that ever does. But you're yeah, a product you're, of your time, Flet. <laughs> you, uh, what you've spoken to is, is accurate and true. And uh, every time it comes up, I think... Match on a Friday or match on a Monday, but not both. I understand the the modern marketplace in terms of the Premier League. And I think a Friday match makes... We're, now we are getting off on a tangent. I will come back to the film in a moment. A Friday match makes much more sense to me than a Monday match. When I think of a Friday match, I think, great, 8pm kickoff. That's really good for the home fans. They can still go to work and get on the beers or you know have a nice meal before they get to the match. But everyone else, take Friday off have a three-day weekend isn't that fun isn't yeah. that nice to have it th- and it doesn't matter where you're going if you're going to burnley or bournemouth actually mm. bournemouth is quite nice probably burnley is as well but wherever you're going have a three-day weekend spend a couple of nights in that town go to a few pubs and see what there is there's you know there's always old stuff yeah. to check out and I, i'm yeah, yeah, very yeah. romantic about that and that's when i was doing the um when when i was doing fulham's europa league run that's what we did you know we spent a couple of days in torino there were those that got a flight at you know 12 p.m arrived in italy 5 p.m ran to the match slice of pizza and then they're off on a flight that night no way man we spent two three days in torino it was lovely i went to a cinema museum anyway let's get back to beyond the black rainbow so this is a <laughs> film that it's yeah it's, it's straightforward to pass its influences and uh one of them 
I was watching it, right, and, and I had the same experience that Cosmatos had, that Spike Jones had. I was watching a, a sequence in the film which is central to it. It's a flashback sequence. And when I'm talking about this film, I don't want to go into plot details. The, the plot is almost an irrelevance, so I won't go into detail on that because there isn't much detail to go into. But um, two-thirds of the way into the film, there's a flashback to 1969 which depicts the, uh, the descent into horror of these hippie ideals. And I thought, I've never seen Begotten by the bloke that did Shadow of the Vampire, E. Elias Meriger. I've always remembered that name. It's a film from 20 years ago with John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe on the set of Nosferatu. The, the conceit yeah. is that the guy, Max Thingy, who's playing Nosferatu, is an actual vampire. And yeah, the F.W. Yeah. Murnau, played by John Malkovich, hires this demon of the night. Anyway, uh, so and I was thinking, I've never seen Begotten by the bloke who did that, E. Elias Meriger. But I, I reckon this is probably what that's like. And so it so it's proven. And, and again, as I say, Cosmatos had the same thing. He's in a video store. He's 15 years old, 14 years old. And he's thinking, I don't know what that could be, but I've got a bloody good idea of what I want it to be, what I hope mm. it would be when he's looking at pictures of Shivers and The Brood by Cronenberg. So I'll, I'll give you a, a sketch of the plot. Um, we're at this wellness facility. There is a doctor played by Michael Rogers. He looks like the exact point Christian Bale becomes Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. And so during the film, I was thinking, if Christopher Nolan finds out about this guy, he's going to cast him in his next five films. It's <laughs> a, a, a perfect synthesis, and it's a good performance as well. Michael Rogers is uh, a psychiatrist, a pharmo uh, psychopharmacologist character, and he has, as his patient at his mercy, imprisoned a teenage girl with whom he has psychological ESP bond. But it, this stuff, firstly, I, I don't want to say too much about it because I think it's important people go in almost utterly ignorant. And secondly, it's not about the plot. It's, it's about its execution. Um, it needs to be seen at the cinema. Wait, as I did, because I, as I said, Dougie told me about it and it was on my radar for a while wait until it's in repertory somewhere near you it's honestly worth taking the time to go to it because this is an oral experience that must be had in a cinema you can't get your sound bar to the levels you you need to, to have this experience because the score which is by one of the blokes from black mountain and this gives you an understanding of um of where we're at black mountain is a canadian band that luke uh, no you didn't listen to him luke but i listened to him 15 no. years ago I used to play them on the radio show that you sometimes guested on. I used to uh -huh. play a track called Druggernaut. That's the milieu we're in. We're in that milieu. But the, <laughs> the, the score by the bloke from Black Mountain, oh, what's, I, I can't remember his name, I'll have to check it later. Um, the score, which is uh, heavy synths, it's conversant with John Carpenter, but doesn't feel like a retread, reminiscent of Tangerine Dream, consistent with this century's synthwave movement. It's an honest expression of the interest of the, of the man who, uh, of the writer who did it. The score has to be experienced in a cinema. The uh, sound design has to be experienced in a cinema. You need to be enveloped by this, because if there's... This is a challenging film, and I'm certain that if you're at home watching it with a partner or watching it with friends and you get 20 minutes in, you'll turn it off. And the best environment in which to experience it 
It's a place where you don't have that option. You don't have the opportunity. You've paid your money. You're there for 100 minutes, 110 minutes. And you've no option other than to let this thing envelop. And yeah. uh, in terms of its, in terms of its uh, cinematography, the execution of that, I, I was thinking while watching it, like, 20, this film is about eight years old now. Um, but in the, it's, it's still at the time of uh, 4K and Blu-ray. And in our modernity of increasing clarity of image, I think this film is defiant in its disconcerting vagary of image. There's points where, there are some points where it's distorted, be almost beyond comprehension. And there are points where the image is distorted almost beyond recognition, almost beyond understanding, but right to the brink where eyes can still be... Uh, Eyes can still be understood, or, or there's a mouth, and you still understand what's going on. But that um, the rest of the time, the there's a fuzziness. I'll, I'll use a shorthand. I'm not above using a shorthand. It's like a My Bloody Valentine video. It's like a My Bloody Valentine sleeve. Um, there's a precision of frame and approach, but within that frame, sometimes it's it's more about a feeling rather than un understanding what's going on. The, the information that we're being presented with within the frame is definitely enough to understand these characters and the thrust of the narrative. But it's, it's done, uh, it's done in a way that's this vision, this, this vision is so singular. I haven't seen a vision as singular since Shane Carruth, who did primer, and particularly upstream colour, where what you've got is a man has flipped open the top of his skull, taken his brain out, thrown it on the celluloid. Yeah. This is this is these are my concerns. This is where I've been. And as I said, Cosmatos didn't have a happy time in his twenties. Yeah. And this is that manifested. I don't know what this is, but you have to this is the only way I can communicate it. We had the same thing with Mother by Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence last year or the year before where you sit there uh, and it's it's the most honest expression of the the concerns of that particular artist it's exhilarating to see such an honest unpacking of a theme i remember at the end uh, i turned to gary job and i said whatever that was mm. i'm glad yeah 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 <sighs> Yeah, I think there are times in life where you don't know what you've experienced, but it, it leaves you feeling something. Um, it's the way I describe... It's the way I think um, punk rock is best experienced as well. Um, like, like, I guess we all know what makes a punk track these days in terms of tempo or the, the kind of chords someone's using uh, and, and the kind of style. But when something shakes you to the core and, and, and you're it's on a visceral level and, and you feel like... Um, completely um shaken around that, that that to me is um is a sign of of, of of a good piece of art and creativity um yeah. all, all it is is an expression and uh right it's an expression of being human if this guy's managed to do that um for you and yeah you, i don't even know what that was i don't even know what that was but i'm glad it exists then that's yeah it's kind of the highest compliment you can pay anything and in terms of set design on a but what I presume on a budget, but this is an, a, an independent film. But in terms of set design, in terms of costuming, we've talked about Barbarella today. Mm. Uh, the the specificity of those designs is admirable 
is uh, lip-smackingly good. Um, I, there were people oh, wow. behind me that weren't with it at all. They, I, I, I can't remember. I think maybe they wanted to see Mandy. Maybe they bought the ticket because they'd seen Mandy. They wanted to see what this cat was up to before then. Um, yeah. And it you, is, it you is. You get people like that in, in any well, yeah. crowd. And I, and I do think, like, what were you expecting when you came here? Um, yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been it, in some pictures before where I can see people turning to their friends with a wry grin, like, what the fuck are we, have we entered into? Uh, mm. And I guess some people have probably been dragged along or whatever, you know, it does happen. You, it's necessary to surrender yourself to it. it, it it's what we learned from Bowie, man. Just be, mm. always be open forever a, until you die it doesn't matter if you're 25 55 75 keep being open to experience i mean this mm. film this film isn't deliberately obtuse it's just that this is the only i think this is the only way that cosmatos knows how to express these concerns in this way go and see it go and see it at a cinema the sound design the the cinematography the engulfing wave of noise within this picture requires a cinema experience and then then we'll get to mandy which i'm sure more listeners are more familiar with um and mandy felt like a norcal evocation of what the fuck josh homie's up to in caius and in queens of the stone age you know his his whole deal seems to be acid trips in the desert of palm springs yeah yeah um and elements of Mandy feel like that. It's either acid or it's LSD. It's got a more conventional plot. And Mandy, Mandy um, has permeated the mainstream a little bit more. I think I'm right in saying it got like a physical home video release around about the same time it had a limited cinema release. Which oh, is that how seems, they went with it? Okay. I, th- I think so. So I think you could literally get it. And I saw the posters up in, in HMV in Norwich. So I know that it came out, got outside of the M25 and it got outside of London. So I, I saw posters up in Norwich, um, HMV, in the shopping precinct for Mandy. Like within, when I say within weeks, I mean like within a fortnight at least mm. of, of it being in the, in the cinema. I think what people have done is mistaken it for... Uh, mistaken it for exactly the pastiche that we've denigrated um it it is more linear Uh, i'll speak briefly to the plot um nicholas cage and andrea riseborough are a couple living in uh an arboreal idyll in northern california 1983 ish and their essentially perfect life is interrupted and invaded by a small cult led out of a, an A-team style van by Linus Roach. He's kind of a Manson-esque figure. He, uh, da- the character himself dabbled in music. He plays Andrea Riseborough, his own record at one point, to try to inculcate her into their coven. She resists that. It goes to shit, and Nicolas Cage has to lay the smack down. So it has. I can understand if an audience saw that and thought this has all the trappings of a film that wants to be a cult film. But sounds taking like in... Roadhouse. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but take, taken in tandem with Beyond the, the Black Rainbow, it's more a continuation of this the same uh, prowess with sound design, score, um, and cinematography. 
uh, so those cats that think that it's trying to be a cult film, that it's deliberately cultish, and that's the vibe that I got from, for instance, long time ago, but 15 years ago, Napoleon Dynamite. I, I've never connected with that strongly. It's okay. No. It, no, feels, I, I it feels no. too much like someone trying to be quirky. And even if it isn't, it it just doesn't hit the same notes as and man man alive like in terms of affectation no one beats Wes Anderson but Rushmore it feels like a true expression of himself anyway getting back to Mandy um, it was the first time I don't know when is the last time I saw a, a Nicolas Cage film at the cinema crikey uh, off the top of my head I know I saw Snake Eyes in '98 but it's been the longest time. It's the longest time since oh, I've... Bad Detective, I think, was the last one I saw in the movies. Oh, sorry, yeah, Bad Lieutenant, you're right, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bad the Lieutenant, Werner yeah. film, yeah. yeah. That is the last... Man. And he's fallen... He's become a punchline, uh, an internet meme, and it it saddens me because of Leaving Las Vegas, fantastic, and Raising Arizona, hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And this was the first time in maybe 15 years, other than... Uh, Bad Lieutenant, that Nicolas Cage was doing the old late 80s, early 90s, honest, wacky Nicolas Cage stuff, because he's not affecting that. Nicolas Cage is a weird guy. Remember, he's a Coppola. Now, this bloke's mm. Italian. Uh, he's he's meant to be like the others, and something went weird, and he became mm. a very different individual to Sophia and Francis and Roman and all of the others, and, and mm. Talia Shire and Jason Schwartzman. Um but he's he's being honest in this. He has the flair that he had, the, the looks that he had in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I felt I've, yes, I've, this I've, is I've the never, guy. I've never understood quite because I, I know that there's reasons that he had to accept so many roles, possibly financial. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which are which are relatively well documented if you if you give it a, a Google. Um, so I understand that. I don't understand why. Um, about 10 years ago, people started, um, saying to like, I was at the pub and people would laugh about Nicolas Cage and say, uh, how he was mad. And it was a punchline and they hated, some people would say they go as far as say they hated Nicolas Cage pictures. I never understood it. Never once. And I would list half a dozen, you know, great Nicolas Cage performances. I'd never, ever, ever understood it. The first time I met Lex she said, sure, Nicolas Cage was a weirdo and weird and how old he was. Never uh, have I understood it. I must admit, I haven't seen some of the, the weird dross and, and that kind of thing. And and you're right, I, I appreciate that Italian-American, uh, he's he's not necessarily not, not necessarily of that, or cut from that cloth in, in the same way that some others are. Um, I, don't, I don't understand, I don't understand the Nicolas Cage thing. The only thing I can think is, um, thank God, for his own sake, Dennis Hopper was from a pre-internet age because that that man, Dennis Hopper could have been uh, you know really good meme fodder uh, for, for for this generation. That's a really good comparison. That's the only other one I can think of. But they're, yeah, they're mind. both. I, I I'm asking too much of the general public to understand this. But Nicolas Cage is an unusual man. I think there may have been a time when he was trying to be unusual, like a lot of actors when they're first on the scene. Remember his contemporaries were Sean Penn, Matt Dillon. Maybe he wanted to be different there. Remember, he ate a cockroach for Vampire's Kiss. But it's all f for the longest time, it's all felt completely honest. These aren't affectations. He's not trying to be weird. He just is a weirdo. Yeah, Nicolas Cage has been lost to the internet, but this was the, f the first film in a long time where I felt, yes, that's Nicolas fucking Cage. This is the guy 
Uh, the, he was one of the better actors of the 90s. And Ethan Hawke, of all people, who I who I have immense respect for, especially off the back of the... I haven't yet seen First Reformed, but Ethan Hawke is living so wonderfully that notion of one for them and one for me. Because Ethan Hawke easily could have been lost in the sway. He was a, you know, a child actor in the 80s, and he was lucky enough to fall in with Linklater in the 90s, but he could easily have been Skeet Ulrich or uh, Matthew Lillard. But I think he's got application, he's got his own ideas. And Ethan Hawke has said of Nicolas Cage, he's the first actor since Brando to push the form. He's doing something different mm, with yeah, the form. Yeah. Since yeah. Brando and off the back of Brando and uh, Stella Adler and um, uh, Stanislav, Stanislavski, you're not dead. <laughs> you, who you think I taught to girls? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, Brando, and Brando's another example as well, isn't he? Like, of, of that ilk, that the, the guy who's just mad pushing the form to a certain extent um you're right internet, yeah would it in, in an internet age would be fucked yeah you're you're so right about hopper though because i immediately jumped on um apocalypse now which is coming out in a couple of months again and i'll get along to it i've seen it once at the cinema i saw the redux i suppose that yeah, was I saw 2000, the redux 2001 the yeah was it was 2001 great. They re-released it digitally in about two thousand eight or nine or something. That definitely I didn't. Again. I didn't oh, sorry, see probably that. Probably nine. Run. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Hopper at the end of that, that's not acting. There were points on the shoot of Apocalypse Now where the acting wasn't a consideration. You were that guy. He was the photojournalist. Bottoms mm. was Lance. The, the the lines that they they blurred to the point where it was this was just your life now. And when yeah. he emerges with the cameras and um, the the quoting of poetry. You're right. Hopper is oh, it's such purity. I don't know if we can get back to that because you know that if ever there was a film like Apocalypse Now again, it would have a fucking Twitter feed, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe the future of that kind of affecting outlaw, transgressive cinema will come not from North America and not from Europe, but from Africa. Maybe from parts of Asia, but maybe in Africa, if where they that they can remove themselves from this social media churn. Well, yeah, but also basic things like uh, health and safety and 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 unionisation and workers' rights and, and yeah. you know, the, the things that would prevent prevent anyone these days from thank from you. Yeah, such a I, chaotic I work. <laughs> I should be reminded as labour and as a union man as well that uh, <laughs> I, I am in I am in favour of those things. And on the set of Aguero Wrath of God by Herzog. Kinski is irritated by a, a number of crew members playing cards in a hut too loudly, so takes a shotgun, fires into the hut, blows off the finger of one of the crew members. That almost leads to a revolt, um, and Herzog finds Kinski walking offset through the jungle, about to leave, and Herzog explains plainly, if you leave, I'll kill you, and then I'll kill myself. And a few years later, they're working on Fitzcarraldo together, and that's the one where... The natives came to Herzog and said, we can kill him for you, if you like, and no one need ever know. Mm. We, yeah, we, I mean, those are nice things to hear about. But I suppose in 2019, we shouldn't really ask for that to happen. <laughs> um, we can be romantic about it, certainly. Um, but yeah, M Mandy is uh, Mandy's terrific as well. Um, so the, the, yeah, the, the cult led by Linus Roach is great, really good. I, I've always had a... I've always had a, a place in my heart for him just because he's Batman's dad. I really liked his 
sliver of a performance in Batman Begins, the um, mm. what do we do when we fall down? We get back yeah, up, yeah, yeah, yeah. descending yeah. down into the what the, the abandoned well that yeah, yeah, Bruce Wayne it, yeah. has fallen down into. I, I really like that. Um, Christopher Mike, Nolan is yeah. very good at casting. And anyway, Michael so Li- gets to echo it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Linus Roach is very good. Um, I, will, I will say one thing, Fletch. How on earth did you do this as a double bill? Um, I, well, how, how do you mean specifically? This was a double bill, right? This was this yeah, was yeah. One after the other. It must have just been a an intent, intense as fuck watching experience. Like, Between... what did you do after? Did you go out and have a drink? Did you have a meal? Did no, man. This was get a we, McFlurry. We I don't know what did you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, through a milkshake at a politician. Yeah. Now this was this was half nine. And we got out at 2 a.m. on a what, what is then a Sunday morning. So what I had to look forward to, and actually it went, this is, you know, finally we've got flipping uh, night tube. So I hopped on. I was back at Ealing Broadway at like, I don't know, 45 minutes later. And yeah, I had to walk home. Um, but it was, that was very tranquil. It, it felt like walking home in Norwich that I used to, um, my last year of university, where you're leaving somewhere uh, in the middle of the night and... It's not as though the sun is rising, but maybe there's a glimmer of it, and it's pretty light I, yeah. actually at three a.m. Surprisingly, it is at the, in this time of year, and also the, the birds are, are kind of just starting to wake up anyway because a yeah. the artificial street light, but b it's British summertime, so the light was, is there. Yeah, the, the sun. We're, we're in this, this period where the sun doesn't quite truly set. Uh, it, it, it does, it's dark, but, but the sun just peaks down for a moment and kind of peaks back up again. This is Spring Watch, isn't it? You've been on the Spring Watch. <laughs> it's educational, it's educational. I really should have watched more of it, but you're right, it felt like the sun didn't go away. Yeah. yeah. Properly. Um, I was very happy that it didn't rain because it would have been a miserable end to an otherwise transformative evening had, uh, had it started pissing down on me. Just about four and a half hours in the company of Panos Cosmatos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the behest of Dougie and of Gary Job. I'm a different person because of it. I, I don't know when I'll next see these films, but I want it to be at the cinema. If you're outside of London, um, your best bet is to, is to be getting them on home video or streaming. But come but in. I, but, but come I in take, for it. Whatever population yeah. centre is, is exhibiting these films, and they will run... That both of these pictures, it's clear, will run once or twice a year in big cities: Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, London, and you know, cool places like Norwich and Brighton. Um, because this is—I uh, don't love live music. I like to hear a band play it like it's on the record. That's why I enjoyed the Strokes a couple of weeks ago because they don't fuck about. There's a little bit of. I mean, Julian says some stuff. This time we couldn't hear him because the mic was so low. There was a, a crescendo of complaints. But the Strokes generally, if you want to hear Nick play it like it's on the record, that's what he does. He plays it note perfect from what was on uh, First Impressions of Earth. I think I ever quite um, knew that about you, that, that you prefer to hear it kind of uh, as it is on the on the record. Yeah, oh, you're yeah, talking about like Bob Dylan when, when he completely does a different arrangement. Like you barely recognise the... Not that, even... That well, I'll, I'll give you an example like... Um, Danny and I saw Yola Tengo on All Tomorrow's Parties and he was enraged by the end of it, actually leaving angry. And I, well, So we, we moved to get a pint and I say like, uh, so should we move on to the next one? He says, you can't fucking do that. That's fucking bullshit. I said, well, what, you mean the, 
yeah, you don't noodle for 15 minutes. Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, and this is yeah. a bloke that's usually just reserved and chill as a motherfucker. And he was, yeah, and it's, uh, I, yeah, I, I generally, I, I don't need need it to be too much different from the record. Now, there are exceptions, and I'm, I'm having difficulty explaining it because the, the, the difference between listening to My Bloody Valentine on record and seeing them live is stark, but it is a continuation. Whereas I think the... Um, Seeing these pictures at home is not seeing these films. And I, I don't know what band to compare it to, really. But it's not the same. You're welcome to watch it on telly, but it's it's too easy to be distracted. It's too easy to think, well, I've given it half an hour. And you you need the, the, soli- uh, the relative solitude and the ease of absorption into it that can usually really only be achieved in a theatre and you need that that the the depth and vibration of sound to mm. understand what Cosmatos is trying to do with these things. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, cinema was ephemeral. You didn't... If you wanted to see it again, you went to the pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't yeah. have it at home. You well, might, yeah, you know. they, they, re, they recut Barbarello in the, seven, in the 10 years later in 77 and, um, you know, slightly, slightly retarget it, repackage it, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not just talking about, we all know that Luke and I have affection for novelisations, Craig Shaw Gardner and Willow, mm. and you get the Star Wars, and who did Empire? Yeah, Donald yeah. F. Gult. Donald yeah. F. Glut, yeah. yeah um, but yeah. just, uh, uh, you know, 50 years ago, and even 40 years ago, a film was a thing that you saw at the cinema, if you wanted to see it again, you went back to the cinema, and if it wasn't playing any longer, oh well, you know, you've got that, you've got that memory. If you want to recall those feelings, you can. It can only be done by memory. Whereas any time I want to feel, well, any any time I want to reawaken, however it was that, let's say, Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or Boogie Nights made me feel, bum, YouTube, twelve seconds. Yeah, that's true. You know, and it reconnects me. But mm. man, what must it have been like for cats like Scorsese and George A. Romero, who are renting reels? whenever they can afford to. And that's the only, unless they see it at the cinema, that's the only way they can, they take it to the, the film department at their local college, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, mm. right, so here's some pictures that are coming up for us in the next few weeks. Friday, June 28th, sees the opening of In Fabric. It's got an interesting poster. It's by Peter Strickland. And talking of sound design, this bloke did Barbarian Sound Studio, which has been on film for every couple of months, late night, for the past couple of years. He also did The Duke of Burgundy, so we know it's going to be one to watch. And it's produced by Rook Films, which is Ben Wheatley's lot. So, of course, Sarah D's in it. Of course, Steve Oram's in it. And Julian Barrett as well, plus Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones and Marion Jean-Baptiste from Secrets and Lies. And I think she's been in a police procedural for the, a police procedural for the longest time, maybe without a trace. In Fabric, the pedigree's excellent. I don't know much about it. Opening on the 28th. If you want to wait until the weekend of July 16th, 17th, Regent Street Cinema in London, in Fabric, will be playing in a double bill with Barbarian Sound Studio. I'll be there. On uh, Friday, July 5th, Don't Look Now is back. And the following week, July 12th, Jaws is on the big screen as well. We've also got, um, opening the same day, July 12th, Stuba. Right? And the reason for that title is because it's about an Uber driver named Stu. <laughs> <laughs> and he's played by Kumail Nanjiani. Um, into his cab descends a detective played by Dave Bautista, who I've got time for, and I'm interested to see where he goes cinematically. Uh, I don't know much about this picture, but it's directed by Michael Douse, who did Take Me Home Tonight and Goon, and he is solid. 
all his pictures have been interesting. They've mainly been three out of five. But mm-hmm. give that your patronage if you can. That opens on July 12th. Same time as The Dead Don't Die, the new Jarmouche, which really requires little introduction. It, everyone's in yeah. this fucker, isn't it? You've seen know, the trailers. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, it's um, unreal. Yeah, I think it, it, it looks like it's going to be really good. And the funny thing is that... Uh, Homeboy Win was rewatching and watching for the first time Jarmouche last year. And when he told me, I said, oh, you know, I, I don't really. And then I realized, hold on, there's only two of his films I don't like. And I hadn't. Yeah, he's, he's always been there for me, I suppose. I thought it was only Dead Man. And then we went by and one by one. And I thought, no, this is this is all pretty good. Down by Law, I'm down with that and Night on Earth. Uh, and I loved Only Lovers Left Alive. So this seems to be doing for zombies what that did for vampires. A um, couple more things that you need to put on your radar. Gwen opens on July 19th. I don't know anything about this one other than that it's set in a Welsh village on the edge of industrialisation, which made me think about how green is your valley. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, and uh, it's by William McGregor, who I think is a debutant director. And Maxine Peake's in it, and that's just enough for me. I think she's possibly the best British actress working today. And at the same time... Oh, this is odd. A picture called Tell It to the Bees is also opening on July 19th. Now, this is with Anna Pakin and Holiday yeah, Granger. Yeah, i heard of that, yeah. Right. It's directed by Annabelle Jankel. It's her first cinematic film since Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> now, she, she yeah. and Rocky Morton, they were... They were a big deal in the 80s. They invented Max Headroom. They followed yeah, that yeah. with DOA with the Dennis Quaid picture. I think Meg Ryan's in that as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they were torpedoed by that. And this is the first uh, narrative film she's had released in cinemas mm. since that 25 fucking years. Yeah. So I, I don't know how good it is, but just go along to see it. I mean, mm. yeah, I know that <laughs> they, they were blacklisted after Super Mario Brothers. No one wanted to work with them. Because, it, I mean, you say that there'd be a Twitter feed for Apocalypse Now or whatever, but Super Mario Brothers was a good example where I, I can't remember what it was, if it was Variety or whoever it was, had an interview with the cast and crew on set and they had, they were so down on the whole experience. They it just came gushing out. Um, mm. So it, it should have been the nice cover story on Vanity Fair, or the, or the variety, whatever, for the film's release. But upon sitting down, everyone just said, "No, we're heavily drinking. Directors don't know what's going on. It's a complete mess. It's a shambles." Uh, and this and, was uh, con- this was contemporaneously. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. So, 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 so ahead of the film coming out, everyone already knew the the, the gross behind the scenes, uh, and that's why they were blacklisted. They were completely blacklisted from Hollywood for well, like you just said, next twenty five years apparently. A quarter century. I think Annabelle Jankel probably has something to say. And then the last one is not my bag, but I thought I'd mention it. Tuesday, July twenty third, Loopers, the Caddy's Long Walk comes out. Uh, some documentary about caddies, but Bill Murray does the narration. And, you, you know, uh, if there's one thing that Murray can do fantastically well, it's uh, his warmth is infectious. And if he's enthusiastic about a subject, I'm sure that it will spread to the viewer. So uh, have a look for that one as well. I don't like golf at all. But mm. if there's one person that could get me into it, it's going to be the Murricane. So I think, man, alive, it's been a, a marathon. But I think that's our show, folks. I hope you go and check out Barbarella soon. So um, uh, I'm, I'm tempted for you to bring it along, but I don't want there to be pressure around it. I want it to be more like you and I have had an enjoyable day. We've had a nice dinner. And then you say, oh, should we put it on? You know, and it's a continuation mm-hmm. rather than queuing it up and saying, let's all four of us enjoy this now. 
Yeah, it, it ain't that kind of picture. It's the kind yeah. of picture that you have to chance upon, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, but let us know what you thought, of course, about Barbarella or, or, or Mandy or Beyond the Black Rainbow, whatever it might be, if you've checked out any of these things um, or you have any thoughts yourself about um, any of the topics we've discussed today, do get in touch. We are www.onesensationalshot.com. There's a contact form there. You can get in touch with us there on the website. We're also on Twitter at One Sensational. And if you search for, on Facebook for One Sensational Shot, you will find us there. If you've been listening on Spotify, thank you. Tell your friends. If you've been listening on iTunes or the latest Apple Music app, do leave us a review and uh, and 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 let people know about the podcast. It helps if if you leave a review, it does help people to find us and discover us, which is is good. It means a lot to us personally. There's also a way that we monetize the podcast, and at this moment in time, it's not necessarily asking for money through a kind of online subscription tool. It's actually going onto our eBay shop. And that's by searching One Sensational Shop. There's a there's a link to it on onesensationalshop.com. So you can go there, check us out on eBay, and uh, the proceeds that, um, that, 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 that we get from selling dated merchandise and pieces of memorabilia uh, help to fund the podcast and uh, put it into your ears, which is what you're hearing right now. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. It has been Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton here on the Evening Glass podcast at One Sensational Shop. Signing off. 